This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I'm a little hurt now that even my spam email only talks about my good contributions to science. <laughs> this, this is a good first attempt for a uh, new researcher, Josh. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we explore the deep, dark world of predatory journals. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 156. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Josh. This is not our standard recording time, but this is when life happened, and uh, here we are on the on the Zoom. Yeah, we are recording on a Saturday morning, and because of that, I have traded in my coffee stout for this actual cup of coffee. I also have a cup of coffee with cream, no sugar, and I think, Josh, you buy fancier coffee beans than I do. I, I famously, this was back when I was in grad school, I think. I started getting the coffee that Consumer Reports recommended as the <laughs> cheapest reasonable coffee, and so I still drink that, and it's the 8 o'clock Columbia Peaks, but I get the whole beans, and I grind it every day and make a French press, so it's not as bad as it could be, right? That is so you, Dan, and uh, I guess mine is probably so me, my artisanally roasted beans from my local coffee shop, uh, but I do the same as you, Dan. I'm a cream, no sugar, freshly ground in the French press. So we have that in common, at least. Um, so people can find my coffee at any grocery store. Tell them about your coffee, Josh. All right, Dan. I thought since we have this unique time of drinking coffee on the show, we could talk a little bit about coffee. Uh, listeners might be surprised to know, if I was given a choice of having to give up beer or give up coffee, uh, I would give up beer in a heartbeat. I could not give up yeah, my coffee. Yeah, pretty easy call. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm having, Dan, these are some of my favorite local beans from my favorite coffee shop here in town, Bean Traders in Durham, North Carolina. I'm drinking the Ethiopian Natural Beans. And so a little information about these that I think is interesting. Uh, these are from these beans are from the Yergeshef region of southern Ethiopia, where a lot of coffee beans come from, and they are naturally processed. I don't know what that means. Natural processing means that right after the beans are freshly picked, they are dried in the sun. And it's a very traditional uh, and common way to create coffee. So often people pick the beans and then they leave them out to dry during the afternoon before they're shipped off to eventually be roasted. Um, And one thing that's cool about naturally roasting is you preserve a lot of those um, those nuanced flavors. So naturally processed beans often, especially from Ethiopia, often have a heavy fruit and wine flavor, which I love, Dan. I love a fruity coffee bean. That also aligns with your beer choices. You've had a, <laughs> a number of fruity, hazy uh, beers in your day, Josh. So you must have a profile now. That's true. That's true. But you know, you can com- you can contrast the natural processing with the other main type of processing, which is wet processing. So those beans, instead of leaving them out to dry in the sun after being picked, uh, they're soaked in vats of water for a while. And 
I guess a benefit, if you could call it that, to wet processing is the beans have a more quote-unquote consistent flavor. But I think what that really means is some of those nuanced flavors are kind of washed out, so to say. Yeah, I have toyed with the idea, especially as climate change uh, approaches and, and impacts, of getting some coffee plants. And I don't know if, uh, I think they cannot freeze at all, right? So they're they're grown in very hot places. But I could bring it in and out of the garage every winter. And it has occurred to me that if I do this, I'm going to need a way to process them. And now I know two different ways to do it, Josh. I have to go with natural processing, right? If it was a one bush coffee, cup of coffee. I think that's what you'd want to do. Um, I will just be excited to watch you try to replicate the climate of southern Ethiopia, Colombia, or Hawaii in Hillsborough, North Carolina. But I will look forward to that. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> it's coming our way, Josh. Uh, <laughs> that's true. So on, on that positive note, uh, we'd like to thank our friends at Promega. You know, being a scientist is more than just running experiments and analyzing data. Whether you're giving a presentation at a conference or writing an article on your results, Promega can help. Head to the Student Resource Center to check out webinars on scientific writing and poster presentation starring you and me. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. Thanks, Dan. And we also would like to thank our friends at BioBox. Do you work with human or mouse sequencing data? Analyze and explore your data on demand with BioBox Analytics. Process raw data, generate stunning visualizations, and connect your own data directly to insights from popular public databases. All that without coding experience. Accelerate your time to scientific discovery and sign up for a free account at biobox.io. All right, Dan, let's get on to our topic of the week. I caught up with Antonio Paramo, um, PhD, and we got a chance to talk about a topic that I had very little knowledge about, because I don't think this existed when I was in graduate school, this idea of a predatory journal. Have you heard of these, Josh? I have certainly heard about these, and I think I get emails uh, from these potentially predatory journals uh, at least once a week. So I'm really interested in learning a lot more about this. Yeah, it is a it is such an important topic and something to really be aware of if you are currently in the lab or you're currently publishing. So uh, let's listen to this interview, and then you and I can connect about it afterwards. My name is uh, Dr. Antonio Paramo. I'm just uh, an independent scientist. Uh, right now, I was visiting professor in different universities before, and I was teaching this type of uh, uh, courses related to scientific publishing in, uh, in person, uh, doing workshops for a few years. And last year, I just converted uh, the whole thing into an online uh, training uh, course. And what we are going to talk about uh, today is a little bit about my experience uh, teaching uh, about predatory journals. But there are many other topics in uh, scientific publishing and writing that uh, are very interested, uh, interesting for uh, uh, PhD students and researchers in general. Well, that's great. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about this because this topic of predatory journals was not very common, or it wasn't something I was aware of 10 or 15 years ago when I was in graduate school. You know, I, I was aware of publish or perish, but I didn't understand that publishing could also be perishing uh, if if your yeah. paper gets trapped by one of these predatory journals. So for people like me that maybe aren't so familiar with the idea of a predatory journal, can you, can you say a little bit about what that means, what that is? 
Well, um, I'm, I'm reading here the uh, the definition proposed by an article a few uh, some months ago by the journal Nature, where they spoke with a, a number of people in the uh, in the area, and then they decided to to propose some consensus definition, which is obviously different people may have different opinions. But just by reading a little bit, is a predatory journal or publisher is an entity or a or a business that. Um, is prioritizing the self-interest of the businesses versus the interest of the researchers that are uh, publishing with the journal. And that most of the characterization that, that you can describe uh, this type of businesses are people that uh, use uh, false, or false or misleading information to attract uh, researchers to, um, to tell them to solicitation practices in order to tell the, uh, the researchers, professors, or the students to send them uh, articles for publication. And then uh, all of these practices or uh, editorial practices or publication practices are not the typical standard that our, um, a reputational or a, good, a journal without good reputation should have. So um, with that, is, it's uh, again, uh, there are um, borderline definitions, and it's, it's something that uh, you get a little bit trained to observe the behavior of uh, some of the publishers over time. But if you are presented with one um, website, a journal, some people may not be able to decide if, uh, if the journal is just following this definition, if the journal is potentially predatory or not. I just want to make sure I understand. So... Every journal is a business. They they are all they all have employees. They have to take in money and make profits. But a predatory journal is, and it's going beyond that. It is focusing just on making money, and it's allowing all of the other things, the scholarship, the peer review, the good business practices, go by the wayside to maximize profit. Is that kind of the idea? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, what some some of the activities could be potentially considered criminal in some uh, jurisdictions right now. So wow. it's it's uh, because it's borderline uh, presenting your business uh, with false advertising or with uh, uh, or con- continually aggressive uh, and indiscriminate solicitation for the business or so. That is this type of marketing or so is uh, illegal in some in some uh, in some countries. But so the, the idea behind this, uh, this type of uh, businesses of individuals that are behind the, the journals or the publishers is basically to make as much money as possible out of the uh, need for many students and researchers and professors to publish because they need to publish as fast as possible, as, as, as much as possible. So this basically uh, the needs of the researchers is what they try to make uh, money uh, from them. And it's, it's a real issue. Um, as you say, 15 years ago, there were no... Uh, predatory publishers, but now there are there are a lot of a lot of them, and uh, we will mention later if you want about the company that has a list, and there may be ten thousand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand of them. Yeah, I, I want to get to that list. You kind of mentioned that the victims here are the people trying to publish, the scientists, the researchers, uh, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, can you talk about some of the consequences of having this type of predatory practice in in the scientific industry? The first that comes to mind is obviously the economic consequences for the person. So you pay $500 or $300 or $2,000 to one of these people and then you lose the money, but basically it's this. But beyond this, you have the, the issue that 
when the, the paper is published in a predatory journal, 60% of or 70%, it depends on the uh, statistics, they, they never get uh, a reference. They never get any citation, which means that you don't receive the benefit of uh, getting citations for your work. It's like why publish it, right? If if it's yes, not read publish, and cited, yes. it's just work is gone. Yes, you lose this um, feedback or from other researchers because nobody is going to cite. Although it's happening because of the complexity of the system, it's happening. But basically, sixty percent of the papers that are published in a predatory journal get zero citation. What is that? What is that statistic for a, a reputable journal? Because I assume some papers just uh, never get cited. Is it 60% or 50%? Uh, I don't have the statistic. I think it's about uh, 20 to 30%. It's, it's uh, much, much lower. lower than that. In, in, in good journals, it's actually below 10%. So it's, wow. it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much lower, yes. So the other is that you, get, uh, you may get negative uh, publicity because people think that if you put in your CV by mistake that you're publishing, uh, uh, I, I can tell you in China, for example, they have a. They they can verify if you have been publishing in a non-reputable journal, or, and they actually say, "Oh, this person didn't have a good judgment because they sent the publication to wow. a non-reputable journal." So this may affect your your own reputation, no? publicity. The other, which is, I think, is much more serious over for the long term, is the citation contamination, because. Um, uh, people are starting in in the last few years are starting to put references at the end of the manuscript in good journals. So you publish in say Nature. This doesn't happen in Nature, but in a reputable journal. And then um, for whatever reason that you didn't realize or you didn't know, then you put as a reference a paper that was published in what Cabells or other people may consider a, a non-reputable or predatory journal. And then you are accumulating uh, references to uh, in good journals, reference to papers published in bad journals. And that is uh, what uh, what uh, some people are calling citation contamination because you are you are contaminating the good literature with bad references to uh, bad journals. And, and that hurts science uh, as a whole. Just, that hurts the entire research process. Yes, exactly. Because then some people, and this is um, happening for sure. Some people are going to apply for grants uh, and the agencies are actually um, going to give them money based on publications or, or papers that are actually uh, published in, in bad journals, right? So it doesn't matter if your work is correct. It's the actually, the actually the process of contaminating the literature and then uh, giving applying for grants with... Uh, with uh, with uh, uh, references or supporting supporting your uh, your application with references that are not not so good. So this this has a, a long term uh, long term uh, bad consequence uh, for the uh, research enterprise as a, as a, as a whole. Yeah. One impact that I I hadn't thought deeply about, but it was in that that Nature article that um, you read the definition from earlier. He talked about his mother in law who had cancer and had had several treatments, chemotherapy and radiation. And then she found an article about vitamin infusions for a particular kind of cancer. And it came from this predatory journal. And and luckily the author of the, of the paper recognized that this is not reputable, but polluting the, the, 
the publication record and and polluting the citation record is going to give people a sense that maybe there are health benefits to something that there aren't. And that can be very dangerous. Yes, this is another consequence that is directly related to the fact that the majority of all of the uh, predatory journals publish in so-called open access. So the literature is now what what uh, 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago for that matter, the majority of the journals were accessible only to scientists that were working in industry or in... Uh, but now with the open access, there is a huge number of people that are... Uh, not necessarily scientists, I'm not going to say illiterate, but that they are not working on the industry and that it's much more difficult for them, uh, even for us scientists, sometimes it's complicated to discern if uh, the journal is, is, is a, uh, a predatory or not. But for people that are not working in universities that have, you see, you go open access and then you read a, a website with a journal, a publication, they, they obviously have uh, less knowledge to to separate what it uh, what is good or not, and so this this uh, this is another example of a consequence that uh, it's it's complicated to to see in the long term uh, all of these all of these issues, right? So I'm glad that you mentioned that one. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think you you know you you started off talking about the economic impact, um, and this is coming out of people's grant money. It's it's real money. Um, you cited a, a 2014 study in, in some of your online content that said $75 million in fees and 420,000 articles um, went to yeah. these predatory journals. I mean, this is this is serious money. And that was 2014. I can only imagine that yeah. those things have expanded since then. This is an article that I found in Mature uh, in 2014. But the real calculations, nobody can really, can really tell. I've been looking for people that um, are involved in these calculations. And I've been I've been seeing estimates between 300 to 500 million a year or 100 million. So it's it's really complicated to tell the direct impact, which is the actual money that, that people are actually uh, spending, you know, and and in, in uh, paying directly in fees. But the the economic con- even that is just too small compared to everything else, you know, that is contaminating the whole enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is not something that just affects junior researchers or people new in the field. Other people can can be taken in, senior yeah. researchers. Yeah, there are. Um, um, I presented to you and and in in the course that I have, I talk precisely about this because some people, particularly in Western countries in developing economies, they think when they are in. The university or in Harvard University or in University of Michigan, where important universities, they think that this is a problem that do not affect them because they are important professors or whatever. That uh, there are there are uh, people in even in Harvard University that I know it was reported in the journal Nature that they actually fell prey to this to these predatory journals because, um, as I say, is. Blur the. Uh, it's a little bit difficult in some cases to to say uh, is this really a predatory journal? Do I send it or not? Even for people with experience uh, like me, so it's, it's it's not so easy right now. Before it was uh, clearer, but it's not so easy. So it affects uh, people with experience, with no experience in developing countries and uh, and also in important universities. And it, and it shows you that these journals, these predatory journals, are getting more sophisticated. They're getting better at looking like a real journal, and so yes. so let's let's transition to that. Um, 
you know, I was surprised. I, I think you mentioned in, in some of your online course work in the content that the moment you publish a paper, your email address is now publicly available. And and talk about how you get on to some of these predatory journals' radar. It is actually a necessity. You uh, you need to put your contact information in your in your publication because you are a scientist. You may want to be contacted by people, you know, for whatever reason. And so there is no other choice. You have to put your uh, email uh, uh, address in your in your paper. So the moment that you publish one article and your contact information is there, sooner or later you will be contacted by one of them. So this is not. It's something that is going to happen for sure because it is in no way to prevent the the problem of collecting the information. And and when I was a student, this is going to be one of those old man uh, statements. When I was a boy, we would finish our research and we would think about where we were going to submit the article because you know if it was really groundbreaking, we might submit to Cell or Science or Nature. And if it was a little bit lower tier, we might submit somewhere else. And and if we got rejected, we would move down. But we were the ones choosing where to submit it. But it sounds like this process is very different. Are they reaching out to me to get my research? Yes. What, what they do is directly they send you, because they have the contact information, and then the quality of the con- the first contact so is... is is something that uh, you are you are not soliciting them to contact you. It's simply that they are soliciting you directly. You don't know them, so you get ninety nine percent is by email. So you get an email that you haven't received before from a journal, and then in the email they are saying uh, things that attract the attention of the researchers. So depending on if you haven't seen this or now that is more sophisticated, then uh, they use techniques to attract you to visit the website or to reply to them or so on. So this, so they, what, what they're doing is simply using the contact information that is listed in the journal uh, website in, in another publication, then they uh, solicit you for, the, uh, for this um, uh, non-reputable journal. They solicit you for new publications. And that, that sounds like a good warning sign. If somebody is asking you to submit a paper that they don't know what your research is about, it probably tells you it's not reputable, right? So there are there are there are some publishers, particularly if you have published with them before, uh, for example, MDPI or so, they may contact you later because you are you have already published with them. And I have some journals uh, and some publishers that occasionally they remind me if I want to send another paper or so. So this is typical if you already have a, some kind of a relationship with the journal before. But a good journal from a reputable uh, publisher like Springer or Elsevier or so, the, this, journal, this journal will not send you a request for, for publishing normally if you haven't had any previous uh, contact uh, with them. So th- That makes sense. Okay, so so let's say I get one of these emails and I'm a little bit suspicious. You know, it seems it seems odd. What are some things that I should do? What are the warning signs? What should I be looking for to confirm this is bad news? Normally, the first thing is to to look at the. Um, uh, there, there is no you you cannot decide based on a single uh, issue, but most of them are people that they don't seem to care really about uh, what they write. 
So if uh, they don't correct uh, the grammar, for example, you see English expressions that are um, absurd, you know, uh, and that you will not see ever in any business communication uh, ever. So some of the signs are like this, English and grammar. Normal spam things. Weird. Yes, uh, it sounds weird, right? So one, one thing is, is like this. Uh, the other is to um, attract you as if you have been contacted with them before. For example, they put in the in the uh, line, the contact line. Um, we are awaiting your response. Like if you have been in contact with them before, or some, in some cases they are they are telling you um, we are contacting you because of your excellent reputation. In, uh, for example, for me, they send me emails saying in uh, plastic surgery. And I don't work in plastic surgery, so it, it really doesn't matter. They just you can be a physicist and they send you an email saying you have a good reputation in in surgery, for example. Right. So it's, it's just a, uh, things like that. So they clearly don't know you, and and those are some signs no, they, that they don't know who you are. They're just they're no, just sending yes. mass emails. More, some of them, there, which is interesting, uh, there is a study about about this. Some of them are actually using. Uh, to attract the attention of the reader, journal names with uh, words or the name of the journal containing uh, words that seems to attract the attention of other, some people. For example, American Journal of or English Journal of. That seems to be the case that when you put uh, or create a journal that has the American Journal or English Journal or European Journal, uh, it seems that they get more, more feedback. And so they are creating, you will see hundreds of journals, predatory journals with the names American Journal, European Journal also. And for some reason it's because some people seem to be attracted to publish in in, in journals that have the name American or British or so. So I read recently one that said that there are at least 700 or 800 non-reputable journals with the name British but actually, there are only 50 real journals with the name British on the on the new journal name. So uh, this is this is another another tactic that, as as uh, we mentioned before, they are getting more sophisticated on creating journals or contacting uh, people uh, to attract this. And sometimes it is. Um, I, I'm not going to say that it's funny, but you see that the people behind all of this are really creative. They are ingenious, you know. <laughs> in getting ideas on how to, because it's a bad business, you know, it's, it's incredible, but uh, they go to great lengths to to create uh, the impression that they are a good journal. And people who are listening can go search for um, something called Beal's List, B-E-A-L-L. And, um, you know, I, I looked this up. I think you said that it, it, the official Beal's List has been taken down, but you can find it on Google yeah. pretty easily. And, um, the one yeah. I found, the copy of it I found, had uh, over 1,300 journals that are are actually predatory and, and made up. And they do. They have names like International Acad- Academic Publishing House and International yes. Academy of Computer and IT Engineering. They they have abbreviations, and they and you click on them, and they look like real websites. I'm really tempted. I, I would love to publish in the International Journal of Multidimensional Research. I see that one on the list, so I may submit. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> so you don't you don't know exactly. Um, uh, it's complicated. There are many factors involved on analyzing the website. It's something that I, I try to to emphasize. That uh, as you say before, um, first. If you if you publish something, it's impossible to get it uh, down. It's, it's there forever. So just think before 
submitting, right? So it's there forever. And the second thing is that even though there are a lot of uh, talk about predatory publishers and people are more aware in some places, they are still growing. The number of journals, are st- I mean, <laughs> when I started looking into this uh, 10 years ago and publishing, there may be, I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000. Now there are 12,000 or 15,000. It's just uh, never stop. Nobody seems to be able to stop uh, this uh, this situation, this problem. Yeah, and it seems like we can't just rely on the on the Beals list. Um, and you mentioned the Cabell's list, which is the the positive side. These are reputable journals, but that costs money to to review. So what if I don't? What if I get the email and it looks a little bit unusual, but it it looks a little bit safe? Is there something I can look for on the website? Uh, you know about maybe who's doing the publishing or something like that that will tell me. This journal is is suspect. Are there other things I can look for after the email? Yeah. So you, normally, if you look at the uh, website, uh, some of the companies may not have a physical address. The businesses um, looks like uh, they don't have a physical address or some place to contact. The contact information is very simple. The editors appear to be in multiple journals instead of just just one, and. And so mostly it's related to the uh, to the aspect of communication with the journal uh, itself. Uh, but still, this is not something that is uh, so easy because uh, some of the uh, more clever of these uh, people are actually setting up addresses in the US, for example, or in, uh, or in England or in uh, Germany. So you can find an address, a physical address in California, and the, that, that uh, is actually a real business uh, address. And so it's becoming, as I say, a little bit more difficult to, to tell. But generally speaking, if you see that the, uh, the editor is the editor in multiple journals or that the, uh, the, the journal, um, you cannot find, for example, let's say that there is a journal that has five years of publishing history. And then you cannot find information about year three or year uh, one because there is no, you cannot find papers from the, a few years ago or that there is no business uh, contact or information about the business owner or where, then, where are they located. Um, so this, these are signs that uh, obviously they are not, they are not uh, good journals or the business may not, be, uh, may not have a good uh, reputation. It, it doesn't have staying power and, and isn't taking care of its research the way that a, a real journal would. So let's say that um, I, I kind of fall for the email and I think, wow, they really think I'm a great researcher. I'm going to submit my paper. So what does that process look like? Do they, I reply to the email and I say, yes, I've got some great research. What happens next? So n- normally one, another sign that mm, the journal is not reputable, but this is not, uh, again, um, a strict uh, consideration, uh, a, a criterion is that they request you to send the manuscript by email, replying by email, instead of using the normal uh, uh, process, which is you go to a management system. Normally, you have to go to a management uh, site. Then you upload the documents and so on. So this, these are management uh, sites for, the, uh, for submission to normally most reputable uh, journals. But if they ask you to send the manuscript in uh, just replying by email, then that's uh, something that um, uh, you should be aware that may not be that good. So the process is you reply, you say, okay, um, I'm sending you the, uh, the email by email, normally the uh, my manuscript. And then if you send them a, a manuscript, 
the normal process is that in about two or three or four days, depending on the on the journal, you will get a reply say your manuscript is in under review or directly your manuscript has already been reviewed and accepted. <laughs> and it takes so there's no peer review process. Oh, the peer review can can be done, and this is something to have a longer discussion about about the problems. You see the consequences of the uh, of the uh, of the existence of the journal. So first. Before, a few years ago, what they were doing was to, to produce fake reviews. Because, again, they dedicate time to the business. It's a bad business, but they put some, some time on the, into this. So you send the manuscript, and then two or three days later, or one week later, they say, oh, this is your, your peer review. And the reviewers are, have accepted the, the publication, and blah, blah, blah. And then in reality, is they themselves, the, uh, the people in the business, in the journal, they just create fake reviews, short uh, fake reviews, and then they send you the, the fake review to, to you and tell, telling you that uh, your paper has been accepted. This is one, one uh, technique. But now, and again, going back to the, to the issue of getting more clever or more, more interesting ideas to, for their businesses, they are recruiting people that are actually, um, that are actually listed in Publons. Publons is a it's a website where uh, people that say, well, I want to present my work as a reviewer. I'm, go I'm going to, to sign up for this. And then I have a list of, um, of papers that I have reviewed. I list my list of papers as uh, my work as a reviewer. Right? The, the, the non-reputable journals or predatory journals are recruiting uh, people that are in problems for, for whatever, whatever method and then they say, oh, can you do a review of this article? And then the article is obviously in a predatory journal. But then the, the, uh, the reviewer is unsuspecting, or maybe they do it on purpose, or whatever the reason. The reviewer is going to do a good review of the, of the manuscript, and then this good review is going to be sent to the author. <laughs> and so they are creating this type of background support for journals that are predatory, uh, in most cases, because they don't know exactly what uh, what the journal is. So, so, so we can add we can add the reviewers as victims who are wasting their time and money supporting yes. these other journals. And, and this and this is actually new. This is um, I remember never heard of this before until a few uh, some some time ago recently. This is something relatively uh, new. And it's not only to talk about problems. It's in general. They just they just uh, create this. Uh, feedback uh, or support from uh, from uh, good people that are just doing reviews and then and then they don't know that uh, the journal may be predatory or not not a good journal. So. Do you pay them when you submit the manuscript, or do they ask for the money later? When does the transaction take place? Normally, it's when they accept the uh, the uh, the manuscript, but. Uh, in there are situations in which they actually may ask the money when you send them the manuscript, but there are very few. I, I think uh, it's not it's not very common. The majority of the cases is um, they ask for the money when they accept the manuscript, but in general, it's just a few days uh, later. That's but what if, what if I get suspicious? Let, let's say they they say, "Oh yeah, we accepted your manuscript three days later." And I'm I'm wary enough, and I know that doesn't sound possible to identify reviewers, get feedback, and and now I say, wait a minute, I don't want to publish this anymore. You don't seem legitimate. In some cases, they may actually threaten you 
with contacting or uh, uh, requesting money from your bank or, or even contacting the institution or something like this. So, so some people may actually feel threatened by the uh, emails or the contact uh, information. They actually, because they have your phone number, they may actually contact you and say, you pay for this because you send it. And they will argue with you that they are a reputable journal, or even if they are listed in some place. No, they will argue with you that they, they, uh, they are a good journal and why do you consider them? And so uh, it's, it may be a difficult, a difficult situation for a, a person that has sent the money or that they have accepted the manuscript. You may end up in arguments uh, having to argue with them for, for some time. So and, and do they eventually publish it? Let's say you do, you do pay them. Does it actually get published somewhere? If you if you pay them, yes, for sure, this is uh, immediate because it takes very little time to to when you send in the the manuscript, they have the ability to produce a DOI digital object identifier in in seconds. So essentially, it's just uh, they do some editing, uh, you know, typesetting very quickly, and uh, and then immediately produce a DOI. And when they produce the DOI and they send the the manuscript out. In the in that is over. So you, you cannot do you cannot do anything anything about it. This is over. So the the real um, the real um, solution for this is to train yourself to try to identify them and not to respond to these emails because otherwise, if you send them your manuscript, it's going to be uh, a problem for for the for the people. Yeah. When, once you click send, it is released in the world, and that piece of research that you maybe took a lot of time and money producing is gone. In all of this year, you have lost uh, the work and, uh, and the money that the uh, the grant, the institution or the people giving you the money. You have lost the, that that money in addition to losing your 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 work and your promotion or or your uh, research. So it's a, it's it's um, it's not just about the fee that you pay. It's actually uh, way more, more. The losses are uh, tangible, particularly for for the funding agency. Yeah, those tens of millions of dollars all came from funding agencies, and so they are, yeah. they are the losers. One of the losers in the long chain of losers. Well, <laughs> yeah, so the losers are the institution because you know, the researchers, the money, the the funding agencies. It's just practically everyone is a is a loser if you get involved on on this. And again, it's difficult to stop them. It's very difficult. Well, hopefully everybody listening is now very aware of of the problem and and at least now can pay attention to the warning signs and and hopefully nobody listening ever submits to one of these predatory journals. Um, and I will include a lot of links to some of the resources that you shared with me and that we talked about today so that they can uh, do some more research. But can you tell them how to find you and, and the work you're doing online and talk a little bit about um, some other things they might learn? Yeah, um, well, I have a, uh, a course, as I was saying, I was teaching this uh, not only about predatory journals, but in general, uh, science, uh, scientific publishing, because um, what I have seen is that most people focus on how to write an article, and this is, um, sometimes it's difficult to define what you mean by writing a scientific article. Most people think that it's related to the grammar or to the English or how to write a paragraph, how to use boosters, and and uh, and so it's it's a little uh, how to uh, not to get uh, run on sentences, very long sentences or so. It's mostly related to what most people think. Uh, 
So what, what I decided is to try to tell uh, um, students or people that I was training that this it, um, scientific publishing is a lot more things. And actually the writing itself is uh, somewhat um, important, but there are a lot more things. For example, how to present yourself as an author and how to get acquainted with the industry. You need to know because in, in, in the end, um, if you publish an article, you are depending on the, assign, um, the publishers for your work. So essentially, it's an industry that you should know a little bit about. How to select the journals, how to avoid predatory journals, how to disseminate uh, your research, how to interact with reviewers, prepare your reviews, how to become a reviewer. So there are all of these things that are practically no one, no one talks about. And if you go to a university anywhere in the world, students are not trained. Uh, they don't receive training in uh, in, uh, in this type of um, a formal training, you know, it's a comprehensive training. They don't receive this. So I, I realized that uh, maybe a need for people to, to learn in a more comprehensive way. So um, I created, uh, after not being able to travel or with this, uh, in, I created a website with all the videos and the training that I offer in scientificwritingcourses.com, which is my website. And they can learn, uh, actually, right now, um, is um, they can follow the course for free. But at the individual level, right now, um, everyone can sign up and then follow the course if they are interested at the individual level. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I went and was able to sign up as an individual. I, I signed up uh, for free. And I went through specifically the section on predatory journals just to prepare myself to help help me understand. But you've got a lot here on how to read papers effectively. I mean, sections on just how to write the abstract, which is so difficult. And, and I think people will appreciate having that step-by-step that -step process. So so everybody check that out, scientificwritingcourses.com. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Antonio. It was really helpful to, to learn about this important topic. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. It's a it's an interesting uh, conversation that I hope uh, people will really learn and, you know, uh, consider uh, training themselves about everything publishing, right? It is important for their careers, particularly if they are PhD students, it's important for the long term. It thank absolutely you. is. And thank you. All right, Dan, thanks for doing that interview. That was, you know, really enlightening. And I think, as I mentioned before the interview, I get these emails and even though, you know, I have been publishing some education type research, the emails I get from the names of these journals often have very little, if anything, to do with the type of work that I have done. And I've always been curious, you know, I've always thought like, well, they must be making money somehow or else these things wouldn't keep expanding and, and growing over the years. So that was really interesting to learn more about what these are all about. I was amazed that there is nothing that spam hasn't ruined, right? There, there is nowhere <laughs> that you can't run a grift. Even science, even people trying to cure diseases and solve the world's problems, we have, we have to have a situation where somebody's going to try and steal money from those people. It, it really kind of infuriates me. But um, I think what the hard part about this, Josh, is it's so subtle. And as uh, Antonio mentioned, they're getting better and better at looking like real journals and, and behaving like real journals where there are reviews and things like that. So I know you had a, an example email that you got. Can we read parts of that just so people get a sense for um, 
yours was not specifically uh, well written, maybe, but some of them really are. Yeah, so I think this one's a good example. Uh, so, Dan, when I learned that you were doing this interview, I just pulled up my trash folder in my email inbox, and this was the most was recent it full? one. <laughs> it was totally full. Uh, so, this is the most recent one I got with about a week or so ago, and, and this one said, uh, "Dear Joshua Hall." This mail is with reference of your article titled blah, 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 uh, which is of good quality, making a good impact in the research field. So first of all, I have to say, you and Dr. Paramo talked about how these emails often inflate the ego and talk about how great the science is. I'm a little hurt now that even my spam email <laughs> only talks about my good contributions to uh, to science is, that my articles make. <laughs> this, this is a good first attempt for a uh, new researcher, Josh. You know, you get awards for participation. Um, also, like, so the next sentence is, in which you provided this email address to contact you. Certainly, when I provided my email address when publishing a journal article... I probably more had in mind if you have correspondences specifically about this research, but I guess it could be interpreted for anyone who wants to spam me for any reason in the future. Uh, might be another reason I provided my email there. All right, so then it goes on. Our journal, Edelweiss Journal. <laughs> you can't even say it. I can't even say it. Edel Edelweiss Journal of Biomedical Research and Review, and they list their ISSN number. Uh, first of all, I would love to have on my CV a uh, publication in the Edelweiss <laughs> Journal of Biomedical Research. You can only publish on the sound of music. That's the that's the research subject. <laughs> so, and and they go on to say they encourage the high quality manuscripts in all the areas of biomedical research. And here are some benefits to the author. All right, that they list. Yeah, th these I love. All right, so these benefits in a bulleted list: quality and quick edit. No, there is a comma between editorial and review. It reads quality and quick editorial, comma, review processing, which makes no sense. <laughs> makes no sense, yeah. Um, this one's interesting based on your interview, Dan. Immediate, unique DOI will be assigned to the articles published with us. And I learned something, you know, this was insightful for me because I think you might think, oh, well, I mean, if they're... I'm not totally sure what that means, but second of all, that sounds like an official, they're an official publishing unit, the fact that they can do that for my article. But from your interview, it sounds like that is a trivial thing to do. And that is how they lock your paper up as theirs and not yours anymore. Yep. Um, next, all the published manuscripts are available to global readers without any subscription charges. Um, I guess all the charges are levied up front to you uh, when you... Yeah, and that's submit. open access, right? That's open access. Um, and last, interested authors can even join our peer-reviewing family. That's so nice. That, Sounds so cozy. Yeah, that is nice. And I'll say, Dan, you know, I have received um, a number of, of invitations to review articles too. And I'll have to say, you know, as I've transitioned uh, over the last decade from microbiology into more science education research, you know, I was very aware of the journals in my field um, as a microbiologist and have been less less aware of what the journals are in the field. I've been learning what those journals are for education research. So sometimes even when I get solicitations to review an article, you know, reviewing an article takes a lot of time, actually. It sure does. I'm like, okay, I have to do some due diligence just to make sure, all right, first of all, does the title of this article seem like it's something that's in my wheelhouse that I have expertise in? But then is this a reputable journal that I want to spend my time reviewing for? 
I think that's what's so pernicious about this is that it's now taking the time out of other researchers who are trying to do the right thing to help. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's just a mess all over. Josh, when you go to the website for that journal, you will find just, you know, you got invited to, to submit to the Edelweiss Journal of Biomedical Research and Review. But there are Edelweiss Journals of Food Science and Technology, Science and Technology, Research and Management, Cardiology, Cardiovascular, Neurophysiology, and Rehabilitation. And these are all listed on the... I mean, there are 30 or 40 in health sciences, chemical sciences, whatever. So this this fits the pattern that uh, Antonio talked about, where it's a publisher of a bunch of things that are unrelated. And then when you look at the editor of the journal that asked you to submit... Um, and either reverse image search the person's picture or you just search for their name, you will find that this person is also the editor on other publishers with multiple journals. So, like a racket, and, and I think it's got a lot of the signs. And, and you said you found it on Beale's list, so I feel comfortable saying do not publish in this particular journal. Yeah. Yeah, do not do it. Um, I will say, Dan, um, one last thing about this email is it ends um, after asking me to publish in this journal or even review in this journal. Uh, the last sentence is, note, if you want to join our editorial board, kindly let us know. We will be glad to have you on the board. So I can be perfect. <laughs> I have like quickly through this uh, two-paragraph email elevated my status from uh, researcher to reviewer to edit- editorial board member that quick there you go yeah i think you should do it josh and then you should vote to shut the whole thing down <laughs> maybe i will dan i think uh maybe you now that you're out of academia dan maybe you should do a deep dive investigative report where you respond to this email and join the editorial board and let us know how it goes i could totally see myself trolling predatory <laughs> journals just wasting their time and and money that'd be really fun yeah that's our new podcast idea dan maybe we'll try that you know the thing that's really frustrating about this and it, it parallels anytime there's a scam uh, or a grift is it typically preys mostly upon people who are the most desperate or vulnerable. Um, and here, even within our own research community, our global research community, as Dr. Paramo said, it's cap- this whole industry, this predatory journal industry is capitalizing upon this need to publish your research. And, you know, who are the people that are going to respond to these, spend this money to publish this research, and who is it going to really hurt their career? Well, probably could be students, could be new researchers, uh, researchers who um, maybe aren't as well resourced, and this is an opportunity they see for them to maybe get their work out there. Um, but as you all talked about, and I hadn't really considered this, there are some possibly long-term consequences of getting locked in with one of these predatory journals. Um, One, you suddenly can't republish that work with a reputable journal once it's locked in uh, with this predatory journal. You're likely not going to be cited the same way that you would, even if it's great work, right? Because other scientists don't want to um, have these journals in their own citations, um, and, and also, Dan, this was new to me. I had not thought about or heard um, discuss this contamination of references. A consequence of having these uh, growing number of predatory journals out there that people have published their work in is these works do get found. And you know, even researchers, graduate students, faculty who are maybe writing grants or submitting their own papers who then reference this work from these predatory journals um, in their own work cited 
that might actually have consequences in the review of your article. You know, funding agencies might not want to fund work that <laughs> where they're even if it has nothing to do with your work, right? But you've referenced these predatory right. journals. Yeah, but but let's say the the paper in the predatory journal had zero peer review and is full of mistakes. You know, we application problem in science is is so difficult because you know, an experiment that I did can't be replicated by somebody else. Well, now imagine that I published these conclusions that have not been reviewed at all, really. And now people start citing my literature that is totally unproven and probably wrong. So it, it really, it just spiders out. And I don't know how you rein it back in, except with one of these lists, maybe, that says, if we see a predatory journal in your references, we'll flag it for you so you can go try to find a better reference. To be fair, Dan, I have also uh, encountered situations in my scientific career where peer-reviewed articles could not be replicated. <laughs> sure. Uh, no, as well. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think it gets worse when they're not peer-reviewed and are just kind of thrown against a wall. Absolutely, yeah. You're totally right there. There's very little good that can come of it. And one of the bigger things is to realize is that these exist, first and foremost, to make money uh, without really a lot of interest in scientific integrity um, or advancing science. Yeah, back to your... Um, I just wanted to make one one extra point on your um, what you said about people who are publishing, maybe they're they're more desperate to get something out there. They're more vulnerable. Dr. Primo and I talked after I stopped recording. Uh, in different countries around the world, uh, funding is structured differently and the government plays a different role. There are some places where uh, he mentioned that the researchers are required to publish a certain number of papers per year in order to keep their funding or to keep their salary. And so he said this is just rampant where... The, the investigators are so desperate to basically maintain their, their way of life that they are willing to publish in these lower, you know, these predatory journals because it gets them to the, it gets them over that bar, that threshold that they need to, to keep their salary. And so in some places they're incentivizing predatory practices. Yeah, it is, it is a real, a real problem. Um, it, it's probably worth noting, and I don't think we have the expertise or have done the research to get into it now, um, but you can look online. There are lots of reputable open access journals that have different philosophies on peer review. Um, we've talked about some of them on the show, you know, even journals, uh, well-known journals at this point, like um, PLOS One, for example, um, that have, have a peer-reviewed process, but the focus, even a peer review, is supposed to be on um, did you do the science well? Were the experiments well set up? Were the controls what they should be? Um, independent of what the results ended up being, uh, which you could argue is a great way <laughs> that we should do peer review. So there are other options out there that are reputable, but it, you know, we need to, as researchers, unfortunately, do our due diligence now um, in the places we choose to public. But it sounds like a general rule, Dan, is you should be thinking about, you should be the one in control of researching where are the best journals for you to publish. The best way to choose where to publish is not through a random email that comes into your inbox saying, please submit to this journal. Uh, that's not a good exactly. way to, to go. Um, and you know, Dan, I remember, although part of this could be certainly it was a different time, you know, I remember being aware of the journals in our field um, and sort of a different tier, the different tiers of journals that we would submit papers to, right? And maybe you would have a general idea for where do I want to shoot for? 
And then I actually remember one paper I uh, submitted in graduate school. You know, we shot for like the top tier journal, and then that got rejected. So we went to the next tier journal in our field, and that got rejected. And then we went to the third tier journal, uh, and finally got accepted. Right, but we were in control of that process. So I think part of it for any of you out there who are doing research, especially if you're in a new field. Like, take some time learning about what are the journals in my field that are reputable. You know, talk to your advisors, talk to other researchers who have been in that field for a longer period of time. Um, Just ask them, you know, what are the good journals in our field? I think being aware of that, you're going to make more informed choices when it's time for you to publish. And when you find yourself coming through the spam filter saying, oh, God, please, is there someone that will take my paper? Uh, Maybe go back and redo the research. Absolutely. Dan, this was really insightful. You know, one thing I would love for us to do a follow-up on sometime uh, in the future is as I was looking through my trash folder on my in my email, I certainly have a few of these predatory journals, but I realized what I have even more of are these very similar emails that are soliciting um, submission to present at a conference. And These are completely far outside of what my research interests are. Like I saw I had an invitation to present at this international conference of ophthalmology or something based on reading. You'd be perfect for it, Josh. (laughs) You have eyes. I do. I have have contact lenses. You know, I have vast experience with ophthalmology in my personal life. But, you know, the structure is really similar to these predatory journal emails because usually it's, oh, we saw your work. Uh, this article title in this journal. And it's an obvious like cut and paste job or it's pulled from some database somewhere. And based on your excellent work, we would love for you to participate in this international conference of blah, blah, blah. And so I'm always curious, like, what is that? Like who is making, I assume there's, there's probably like a registration fee to register for this conference or something. But I've always been curious, like, I kind of want to go down this path and register and like go to this thing and see who's there. Like, what is this? What if I do present my work on the GRE at the ophthalmology conference? Like, what is that going to be like? So uh, I would love for us to explore that. Uh, Are there these predatory conferences? Stay tuned for the follow-up podcast of Daniel trolling the spammers. I will, I'll be on location at the ophthalmology conference and I'll let you know how it goes. Well, I'm pretty sure once I start publishing in uh, in the Edelweiss journals and presenting at the ophthalmology conference, my CV is going to be off the chain, Dan. It's going to be great. The hills are alive, Josh. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, this is an exciting topic, but if you have a topic or question uh, that you'd like to hear about on the show, let us know. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the naturally processed coffee bean money, and thanks so much to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Josh. Well, this is a good one. Um, I'm going to go refill my unnaturally processed coffee and I will see you next time. All right, Dan. See you next time.